Monday evening, back again after a series of some technical issues with Matt's water-cooled computer, uh, which hopefully, fingers crossed, will not zone out halfway through this podcast. <laughs> if, yeah, you hear, if you hear something, and then my, my screen suddenly just freezes, it's because my water cooling system's exploded and Matt's currently trashing his room because he's so upset. But anyway, um, tonight, as always, we have my co-host, Peter Allison. Hello, everyone. And I'm not a guest this time, which yes. is a bonus. <laughs> You're not a guest. <laughs> and uh, our our special guest tonight, we have Chris, sorry, Chris, Chris, Chris Shepherdson. Hi, uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. No Great props. to be here. So, Chris, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? Uh, so, I'm Shep. I mean, unless you're my mum, then you can call me Chris, but it's just weird hearing somebody <laughs> call me Chris. So, Shep. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I'm a. I'm a, a games designer and publisher, and uh, a project manager that uh, has worked for a number of publishers, bringing tabletop games to to life for various, mainly RPGs, but also you know board games, miniatures games. Um, and yeah, I make my own stuff as well. And um, beside that, anything gaming related is very much up my street. I mean, you. Ha- I mean. If you go on your LinkedIn page, you have a long list of credits from Modifius yeah. to uh, Nightfall Games. And, yeah, I mean, where did it all start for you? Uh, I guess it started, I mean, I, I, I grew up in, in, in Nottingham. I was born and bred in Nottingham. And um, I think I've said this before to, to people as well. But when you, when you grow up in Nottingham in the sort of, uh, you become a teenager in the early to mid-90s, you, you, you had two choices and that was like war gaming or or gun crime and uh, <laughs> war, 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 war gaming was my war gaming was my pick right i got hooked on, on games workshop um from a from a fairly young age uh friends at school their older brothers were already into it and we just kind of followed followed suit um and then i discovered role playing some years later and eventually i um I eventually stumbled into a job at Games Workshop head office in my early 20s. I worked for Forge World um, in sales to begin with. And I I was fortunate enough to be able to go around the world with them a little bit to games days in Australia and the US and, you know, sell resin soldiers to to people that had more money than cents. And um, (laughs) And resin expensive, man. Forge World stuff was not cheap. It was not. It's still not cheap. Yeah, it was was very expensive. And um, we... I, um, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to push myself into the design studio, um, you know, get out of sales and start like making games and making rules. And I, and it, and it never happened. Um, I eventually left Games Workshop and, uh, just for the lure of more money, you know, completely different line of work. And, um, you know, I, I, and deep down, it's one of my biggest regrets. You know, I've still got friends that work there now. And, I, you know, I've got a lot of love for the company. Um, and one day I always kind of saw myself going back there. But um, I just went off and I just started tinkering with my own games and messing around with stuff. And over years of just working in a range of different industries, picking up different skill sets, I eventually um, I eventually found my way into attempting to kickstart something and at the same time with some other gamer friends kickstarting some stuff and we were helping each other out and i ended up going to uh to essen 
to help a friend demo his game. All right, okay, well. Um, and at that show, I met our stand was directly opposite the WordForge game stand, and I, I met Mark Rapson of WordForge Games, and we got talking, and eventually I had some freelance work for him, and then shortly after, he kind of pulled me into the Nightfall Games crew, and I helped polish off uh, Slay Industries first edition and move into second edition. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Once I got my name on a few big things, Modiphius asked me to do some writing for them on Infinity. And then uh, I, I, somebody I got to know through the Slay Industries uh, fan base um, actually worked for Modiphius. And he reached out to me and said, uh, we're, we're looking for project managers. And, uh, you know, in that time where I wasn't working in the games industry, I was working as a business development manager and a project manager for a finance uh, industry. And um, pair that with being a bit of a games designer. Um, I had a chat with Modiphius and it, and it was it just kind of clicked together. And I started running running product lines for them. Um, I eventually moved to Steamforged and then actually went back to Modiphius. And, um, <laughs> Very incestuous. Then, uh, yeah, <laughs> and then um, and, and you know, and then uh, some time ago now, last year, I chose to. I was having a lot of requests of various people to do work for them, and I and I felt that I had enough work on to go freelance so i went freelance to focus on my own publishing and work with a few people and since then i've i've been quite heavily involved with monolith uh games uh helping them bring the next the upcoming conan the hyborian age rpg to market mm. for sort of the tail end of, of 2024 so um yeah I, i've been fortunate enough to work with quite a lot of publishers and get my name on quite a lot of nice ips and take products from ideas in somebody's brain to being on the shelves and stores and it's a real privilege to to have the opportunity to do that wow you are basically live the dream. dream then every nerd's dream pretty much pretty every much. nerd's dream yeah every, yeah every yeah nerd. i mean yeah you know like it's great you know it's it's great being able to work on some great ips and on the sideline have my own little publishing thing where i can just kind of create passion projects and put my own stuff out you know like i make 50p but it makes me happy because you know there's 12 people in the world that put my game on the table you know there's that there's that side to it where i have that little creative release on the side and then a lot of my work on games now is very is very business related and less creative because i'm helping publishers you know pull a team of creatives together and get them to focus on the task and you know deliver to budget and on time and um but you know, when you get to the end of that road and you the book comes from the printers or the, the game comes from the printers, it's um it's a real buzz, you know, like it's a great process to be involved in. I have yeah, I mean sorry, Pete. I mean p- people all think about when people think about games and they think on creating all the different monsters, starting up things, the character creation system, the mechanics, they don't really think about the whole management side of yeah. it, which takes probably just as much time as anything else, if not more so. Yeah, a huge amount of time. Like, I like to say that project managers are the unsung heroes of the games industry. Like, you know, you everybody knows the designers, the names on the boxes and the names on the book. And, you know, like they're the rock stars that come in and, uh, you know, put their feet up on the table. And um, they only get to do that because people like myself are slaving away in the background, making sure the wheels keep turning. But, you know, like I, like I say, I'm, I'm kind of privileged in that I, you know, I've worked as a games developer on a couple of, you know, fairly big things. You know, I, I designed the S5S rule system originally for Nightfall Games that worked on Slay Industries second edition. And now in Terminator, um, Ben Graybeaton's taken over the helm of developing that 
going forwards for Nightfall games. So I know that's in really safe hands. And uh, and I obviously do my own development as well. And that side of things, the creative side of things is is really fun, right? You know, be able to sit back and go, I'm a games designer. It's a great, it's a great thing to be involved in. But inevitably the thing that takes it from constant noodling and constant tweaking and constant changing and just sitting on as a kitchen table game and makes it a reality is is the project management process that takes it through, you know, writing, editing, proofing, graphics origination, layout, you know, like print preparation, manufacturing, fulfillment. Like it's a pretty painful process for anybody that's even run a Kickstarter, let alone been involved in a large IP. Um, it's not a quick process and sometimes it's about admin and red tape, but it's a vital process, you know. Um, and that is unfortunately how all games come to market through, you know, all the big publishers. Um, I have it to, is a time-consuming process. I have to sort of agree. Like um, we have product project in my job, so I I'm a product manager for my work, and uh, we have project managers. And um, I was like, when our project manager first came on board, I said, I don't need this person. You know, I just do, you know, I just do my thing. I don't need a project. I don't need somebody telling me what to do. I'm really glad that I've got somebody telling me what to do because it's like, you know, they are there basically finger on the pulse kind of going, you need to do this. This needs to be done in time. This needs to be done. You need to make sure you're doing this, this, and this. And as much as you're like, you feel like it's going to be annoying, you need that regimentation. And they do. They keep the, they keep the wheels turning. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I know that it is annoying to a lot of people, you know, at the end of the day, like my job is to be a pain in the ass. Yep. Like my job is to ensure that you do your job as quickly and as efficiently and as accurately as possible. Yep. And another 50 people doing their bit at the same time as well, you know, and the only way you do that is by getting on a call, picking up the phone, staying in touch, regular check ins you know, smoothing issues, oh, there's been a snag or a delay. Okay, what can what resources can I get to help you get over that snag? And to some people, they want to just get their piece of work and be left alone for three months and just get it done, you know. But inevitably that is how things fall apart, as I'm you know, I'm sure you're aware through your line of work as well. So um yeah, you know, like it would be wrong to call project management fun. Like, I don't think any project manager <laughs> would describe the job as fun. <laughs> but, you know, it's essential. Yeah. And it results in more games being there. And we all like games, right? Like, that's yeah. why we're here. I mean, I've yeah. got um, the Terminator RPG on as PDFs from, um, I think, from the website. And, yeah, it's a, you know, it's beautiful. It's a great piece of work. And, yeah, it's really brings the kind of world of Terminator to life. And, yeah, it's like, when you kind of approach it, I mean, how do you approach developing a game like Terminator? It's uh... Yeah, well, for Terminator, I I was effectively the rules developer. So what happened with Terminator is I was involved with Nightfall Games at the tail end of Slay Industries' first edition. Um, I helped complete the final book, which was the big Cannibal Sector 1 hardback. And then I was part of that, business as we moved into second edition and i did uh the rules development for the new system that was used in second edition which is the s5s system and and a bulk of writing in the core book as well so um i moved on from nightfall games to to modifius uh around the time the second edition hit the shelves um and then the next ip they picked up was terminator so what i did as a uh, a body of work for them was to take that core system that was developed for Slay Industries and 
tweak it to be uh, I terminatorized it right like I altered things that were thematically slay to be more thematically terminated whether that's equipment whether that's the way that the sailors was dealt with ratings points for for the media and um they're like fate and fortune for terminator so we, we adjusted things and developed that system so it was nice and thematic and then the rest of the development of that book was handled by nightfall's uh other team so i just concentrated on the rule side of things yeah. And then that was handed over to to Mark and Ben and and um, Dave and Jared, and they did that team did a phenomenal job of finishing that book. You know, like the content in it is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, but also baking the themes into the rules is a lot easier said than done. I mean, there's a lot of systems out there that just feel very bland. They could be like, they could be used for any system. But you look at say like the terminator or the v5 rules which would which have like you know, the hunger mechanics which is kind of thematically baking in yeah the overarching I suppose atmosphere of the game and like yeah it's it's how do you do that i mean it's to say it is one thing but actually mechanicize themes yeah it can be tricky it's really easy for a publisher to just think like you know i'll slap fifth edition on it or, you know, we'll just use Savage Worlds or we'll use something that's kind of like a, you know, a pre-written system. But I'm a really big advocate for investing time in bringing together the theme of a game, you know. And um, when I've worked with publishers recently, and there are a couple of RPGs that we will hopefully see coming to market 2025, 2026, that I've been involved in rules development for. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to steer publishers away from just slapping fifth edition on a game. Yeah. Um, I, the, the easiest way to discover theme when you've locked a core mechanic in is just to really engross yourself in whatever the setting or the IP or the atmosphere is. You know, like Terminator has so many sort of quintessential elements to it, like the oppression of mankind, the uh, a concept of fear, a constant feeling of urgency that anything could happen at any minute. And the idea is to really cotton on to what those core themes of an IP are. And when you found those, it's about trying to work out what ways you can relate those to, to a dice mechanic or a narrative mechanic within a game. And so, um, you know, we, with Terminator, there's a, a large part of uh, destiny, fate and fortune, and taking the future into your own hands. And so we looked at injecting... Um, like uh, a, a meta currency that allowed you to evoke those feelings of being able to like not only enact um, things that, that kind of twist the fate of outcomes, but also that feel really cinematic because at the end of the day, the Terminator is a cinematic universe. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's the same deal with other stuff. I, I'm also fortunate that I've just finished a large piece of work that's based an RPG based upon um, a very successful board game that already exists and um you know basically spending like 150 hours playing the board game it becomes impossible to not think okay here are key points from the game these are the feelings that it evokes these are mechanics that are translatable to an rpg and you can inject little things that immediately make it feel very uh in keeping with with that that board game product so there's lots of ways to go about it and, and inevitably it takes a bit of time and a bit of investment and um a little bit of creativity 
Um, but yeah, it, it's that is arguably one of the most fun parts of games development is being able to inject thematic elements, you know, to any to any system that you're working on. Yeah, and I find it interesting that you've pushed back against 5e because there has been a a push of having a 5e uh, rule system out there. Even like I know games have actually been released which have had their own system, and then a year, two years down the line, they've had the 5e edition release using the 5e OGL, mm. and it just feels a bit really. And it just feels there's an argument which which is like, oh well, you know, more people know the D and D 5e system. Yes, they do, but they can learn another system. It's not hard. It's been a big I mean, <sighs> sorry, go on. I was going to say, sorry. Joe Mangalero had a bit of a, a rant about um, the uh, the down the downturn of D and D five e recently. Actually, I think uh, it's a comic comic book. Yeah, he had a, he had an interview. Where he was basically saying it went downhill when they uh, when they got rid of. Um, fuck! What's the guy's name? Oh, I'm so bad with names. Yeah. But the, the guy who who basically invented Five E, uh, when they got yeah. rid of him, things just sort of have started downturning and all the all the all the crap with the um the o- OGL OGLs. Um, yeah, I mean that that caused a bit of an exodus. Um, which you know they did take steps to correct that kind of questionable judgment call and. The thing with 5e is it's an easy win, right? You know there's a market for it. There are a lot of players out there that play the world's most popular role-play game, and there are a lot of people who are a little bit afraid to dip their toe a lot deeper. That's what they know. It's what they've played. It's what they love. It's very easy to pick up a new setting if you don't have to learn a new set of rules. And so for a lot of publishers, from a business perspective, it makes perfect sense why you would want to go with something that you know is likely to sell in the marketplace. Um, we are in a weird place now, though, where we know that kind of sixth edition is kind of in the pipeline, and we don't know whether the love of fifth edition will grip it so tight that people would just kind of not really move on to sixth edition or not. Um, but while fifth edition is a great jack of all trades system, um it's really hard to inject theme you know there are some recent releases you know steamforge put out dark souls um you know there's some there are some good games out there that have had put on them and they've managed to inject a little bit of theme but i firmly believe that it could have got something way more thematic for that setting if you'd have gone with something bespoke and don't get me wrong i'm not a fifth ed basher i, I actually have a fifth ed product in my own publishing pipeline uh for release later this year because i think there is a a a place for it and it makes great commercial sense for a business um i just don't think it is necessarily the right fit for large existing ips that are already dripping with theme that you can work from you know i think it's not the great fit for those i think it's sort of obviously weighing up between do you just want to sell things or do you want a game to be a bit more authentic to its um uh to it to its theme um like i for one i i'm 
I'm that sort of generic nerd who who fears change and once he, he has something he's comfortable with, doesn't like deviating from it because it's like, oh no, uncomfortable things. So, you know, I I understand that. And Pete's, you know, yeah. always trying to send me other RPGs and things, and I'm just like, But but I only know D and D and I only know five E and it, it it scares me. Like I do have um there's I think I've got one other I've got one other Lord RPG. of the Rings. I've got, uh, it, oh, I've got, no, two, actually. So, yeah, the Lord of the Rings that you sent me. I also have uh, the Song of Ice and Fire tabletop uh, RPG yeah. as well. Which, yeah, yeah. to be fair, the concept behind that, and I've read it, was like, okay, this does look really good. Um, but because I'm so into this sort of kind of 5e space, so I get the, I understand where they kind of go, well, we need to change people's minds and stuff. So, do we just go the, the path of least resistance? And just go. It's five E, and then people will be a bit more open to buying that thing. Yeah, there's also a from a if you're an established publisher with multiple game lines, you know, like a, a known name in the industry. There's also that question over, like, do you go for the quick win or are you in it for the long haul? Mm. You know, because Fifth Ed might not be around forever. If Sixth Ed comes out, it could be completely dwarfed. It's a quick cash cow for a big IP. Whereas developing an in-house system is far more commercially viable in the long run for a, a big publisher. And you only have to look at Modiphius as an example. 2D20 exists as a system on all of their IPs. And while there is uh, development needed each time a, book, a new game comes out to inject the theme into that system, the development costs of that system are you know, really, really quite small because the system already exists. When a when a publisher generates a, a house system, then they have an upfront cost on the first game that it comes out on. But then after that, the time required for the development process and the cost required for the development process is, um, you know, is drastically reduced. And they're never, ever going to owe a royalty to anybody for it, regardless of what does or doesn't happen. Mm. I've noticed, I've noticed a lot of in-house systems being developed in the past few years. I mean, like, some, like artists on games have had their interlock system for many years, but the Free League have got their own system now, Modiphius, and, yeah, there's a lot more springing up now. Yeah, it seems to be the norm now. You, 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 can, you can go on with that list, you know, Chaosium, yeah, uh, the same cubicle seven. Um, you know, like a lot of people now, they 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 develop a system and they transfer that system. And like, you know, the great example you said is Free League. You know, they they've developed a system that's really quite straightforward at, at the bottom end, and they use that in like a huge array of genres now, from Lord of the Rings to Aliens, using the same system and still managing to inject their own elements of of of, of theme into it. Um, you know, and it's their system. They control it. They can develop it how they want. They can put it on anything they want. And that's yeah. a really powerful tool for a big publisher to have. Yeah. And I mean, is this going to continue? Do you think, I mean, uh, is this going to continue to be where big companies have their own system because they have been burned in many ways by the 5 OGL? Possibly. Um, the politics of, of the OGL is yeah. uh, probably above my station. But um, it's, you know, I know Wizards have turned around now and sort of said, you know, that they, they've, they've, what, what exists now will always be available to people. But times change, right? You know, people have been made promises before. And like you said, people have been burned. And um, 
having an in-house system is is just your own asset and you know the other thing is once you've got an in-house system if people love it then there's nothing stopping you licensing that system to other publishers and um, you know some people already do that uh, I know the Modifius 2d20 system has cropped up on a few um, other games and obviously there's a uh, Morgborg which is yep. you know oh, a system yeah. that's widely available to others and well um, you know there's not a substantial licensing fee attached to that it helps raise the profile of the game that that system is from every time a new game comes out it's got the more Borg logo on there that's more people with eyes on that game so there's a there's a lot of benefits to you know having that in-house process and it's something that i'm a i'm a big advocate for yeah and because also you are you run out to rpg developer as well with your own uh, production Say that again, sorry. Uh, you are your own, like you are now, your own um, IPG developer company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, I, you know, I, I own and run Hansa Publishings. I, I, it's a small operation and it originally started as a way for me to uh, publish my own passion project games. Um, but over the last year and over the next year, you know, that product portfolio is growing a little bit and it's just an opportunity for me to just make a few things of my own design on the side alongside the work I'm doing for other publishers, uh, you know, without treading on anybody's toes. And it's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to do that, you know, like to, to be able to make games that I want to make and do them my way. You've got a, you've got a couple on the website here, actually, uh, the screen capture on again for people to see. So you've got a couple on here, um, which guy, guy complex. Yeah. Uh, yeah so go, go. Darkest death or no, sorry, what's that? Rectify. Rectify that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guy complex is my uh, leading line, if you like. And we, we actually are. We have a Kickstarter campaign live right now for a source book. Um, so you know, as we speak, we are funded on Kickstarter for the second source book for the guy complex. Um, and that's a a dark dystopian cyberpunk setting based in a a future vision of mainland Europe. Um, that mixes in vampires and um, you know uh, the the blood trade is the core of the black market. I think Blade Runner meets Blade, set in France and Germany. Right. Um, that sounds ace. So it's right uh, it's, it's written with an adult reader in mind from the perspective of the fiction and and the the, the meta plot. And um, we we kickstarted the core book in. 2021 and we did a, a source book about uh, the black markets in 22 and then we're online uh, now with uh, a source book evolution by design which is a deep dive into ai and vampires and the other sort of non-human aspects as the, of the of that setting um and the guy complex is a game that i i write most of the words for it's very much my outlet and it is written to be the game that I want to play. So I get a lot of people where I'm very fortunate to have a, a very passionate player base, yep. be it small, but very passionate player base. And I get a lot of like, oh, we'd really like to see this in the game. And have you thought about putting this in the game? And basically I'm like, no, it's never going to happen because it's my game. I'm basically writing it for me, but if you happen to like it, that's a small bonus for me. Right. And, um, uh, it's nice to have something where I'm not working on a project that is to appeal to a mass market. If it so happens that lots of people grasp onto it, fantastic. 
but um you know it's a it's a selfish little endeavor that i'm you know like really really but passionate there is, about but there is a purity of vision there because because you are not beholden to anybody else it is your vision of how the game you want it to be and i think there's something to be said by like games can often be made by uh, by design by committee designed yeah. by committee and it dilutes the purity of the vision that it just feels very bland when you kind of got one person or just a few people working as core team to kind of push a project through from the start to finish there is a, that kind of purity of the game there that kind of just harkens back to the initial idea of let's do this game and then they've done it rather than being kind of filtered out and yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the bigger the team, the bigger the publisher, the bigger the IP, the more people there are to satisfy. You know, if you're working on, you know, a, a large IP, you've not only got to satisfy the, the, the people at the publisher that want to make the game and the, and the developer who wants to be happy that you might also have a the IP holder, maybe the person that wrote the original fiction that it was based on, maybe a movie studio, you know, like th- that all scales. You know, I worked briefly um, on... Uh, Dune for Modiphius as the line manager for a couple of books and you know there are a lot of people to appease along the process Mm. you know it has to get ticked off by the movie studio and then ticked off by you know the IP holders and their lawyers and you know everybody else you know not having that process is a joy at the same time even a even a large publisher that isn't working on a um a licensed IP there might be three or four people in the management structure of that publisher who all want to put their imprint on a game and it can be really hard to you know include everything that everybody wants without the game feeling like it's just kind of at odds with itself um when you're a one-man show with a couple of people that kind of guest right here or do a piece of art here uh, it's really easy to just go you know, here is a piece of fiction that describes the world. Here is a novel that I've written. Here is whatever it is. I'm just going to turn that setting into a game world. Um, it just becomes far easier to do that. Um, and I've been fortunate for most of the time with the Guy Complex to work with just one artist as well, who it has become as much a passion project for Jesus Blones, who is a phenomenal uh, illustrator who lives in the US. He used to work a lot on tabletop games, but he's now pretty much full time a tattoo artist um, and still does the Gaia Complex artwork w- w- along with me as like it's our kind of shared passion now. I, I write stuff, I create the world, and then he kind of reads that world and then he kind of creates the visuals and we bounce off each other. There's not lots and lots of different art directors involved. There's not lots of different artist interpretations of what something might be. We work together really well. And so our our books are very visual. We have a very high art density and a very high standard of artwork. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, the artwork is very beautiful. And that's the one thing we've said this a, f- a few times is like a lot of these RPGs, um, even if you're not going to, you're not going to play them for a while. They just look good on your shelf, even just to flick through for the artwork and, you know, the lore and stuff like that as, as a book on its, in its own right are, are, are amazing. That's, you know, I, I have, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings one Pete gave me and uh, some of the other ones I've got beautiful, beautiful stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, look, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Great art sells games. Plain and simple, right? If a publisher skimps on an art budget, they'll regret it. Like, if they put the money down, 
to get great art, then people will notice it. Every people will comment on it. People will love it. Like art sells games, and you know, great games sell games. Great content, great written content is very important. But more often than not, you can find some phenomenally written games with great rule systems that never see the light of day because they don't stand out on the shelf, mm. and the marketing is a bit dry. And you know, like the visuals didn't grab people. Right. You see a stunning book cover on a on an ad on a on a kickstarter page and people people are far more inclined to, to give it a glance and you know from flicking through books right yeah loads of great art makes you smile yeah 100 percent. like um i am a well i'm i'm, a, I'm trying to not be a um a, a kickstarter addict and stuff but i would uh in my in my heyday i would just go flicking through all the new sort of kind of tabletop games and things that would come out and it, it was invariably the ones that had that sort of kind of wow sort of like awesome art picture you know that sort of um would 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 get you in the door i've i have i can't say how many games i've bought because all the artwork too that many they, all the artwork and stuff that they provided was like that looks freaking awesome and then i played the game i went okay the game's not as well as I thought, but the artwork was amazing. And then conversely, I've seen other games where the game itself is really good, but the artwork is shit, and it's just sort of like it takes the edge off it. And it's like I kind of would prefer the sort of nicer looking thing than the the better rule set. Yeah, yeah, I've got a few of those on the shelf behind me. You know, like really great games that just look shite. You know, like. The graphic design's really basic. The art's really old-fashioned. Now, some of those games are quite old, but it's not hard for a publisher to modernise it and stick some awesome art on it. I think that movement has become really obvious, though. Like, now, it's certainly in, like, big publisher scales. Like, obviously, with with, with Kickstarters, it's still a bit hit or miss, depending on the budget that's available. But you don't see many big publisher board games coming out now without really vibrant art on the boxes you know on the cards in the rule book because i think you know for the for your days of wonder and your ffg and these guys that you know they understand now that it's got to look better than everything else on the shelf for it to perform better than everything else on the shelf you know people aren't going to buy and open that box unless it looks incredible so yeah, I just yeah the, there's uh, definitely a big push. I just got the War in Arrakis. The cool minis are not War in Arrakis through and stuff, and it's yeah, it's got some really beautiful thing as well as like I'm a big thing for you know cool miniatures. Like a lot of the games I buy, you know, just because it's got shiny things, it's got these beautiful miniatures, it's got beautiful artwork. I don't care about the game. I'm just like, oh, those are really beautiful sort of figures and stuff, and I just <laughs> buy the thing, and then you turn around and go, okay, the game's not great, but they got beautiful miniatures. <laughs> Well, which I'm never going to paint which I'm never going to paint exactly <laughs> and that's why I, a lot of them just keep come in and get sold again uh, that, that's a completely different story uh, like I got um, uh, what came through which um, what's a f- uh, Vanguard uh, SS uh, um, yeah I know what you mean by Awaken Rise Vanguard yeah came through that was four four years ago I think I kicked uh, I, I backed that and it's just come through like this week um and um I'm probably gonna sell it 
It's beautiful. It's got some really nice things and stuff, but I'm never going to play that game. (laughs) Four years old, and I'm just like, I'm never going to play that game. And the miniatures, I'm never going to paint those, and I'm never going to do that and stuff. And it's just, it's a sat in the box there, kind of going, you're going to lose money on this now because you spent all that money on a Kickstarter, and you're probably not going to, you know, probably not Mm going to play it. Yeah, yeah, that's that happens a lot. But then you know, there's other times. I um, I backed. I don't know if you guys saw it. But I backed the uh, the Street Fighter miniatures game oh, from Jazzco. So close, so close to that. So end. that took that took what three, four years to deliver. But damn, I'll be honest with you, it was worth the wait. Yeah, you know, yeah. like there are winners. You know, the minis are this big. They're fully painted. They're beautiful. All oh, right. Um, yeah. like this, this it's next level production. You know, like like. Yeah, there's a lot of haters because of the delays, but they are just what they've created is just phenomenal. And I'm like, I don't have to paint them. It looks stunning on the tabletop. Like it's really special, you know. So there are there are winners out there. Oh yeah, yeah 100%. I know. Like 100. There's, there's this big trap from Kickstarters of miniature games being delivered, and you get enticed to the all-in pledge, and then you realize when it arrives, that's like 14 boxes of miniatures and expansions, and it's like. Where do I start? And you, like, <laughs> if you bought just the core set, it'd be easy to play the game. But when you've got all that stuff, you feel obliged yes, to learn yes. it all and put it all in. Like, like, oh, you're like I can't just play the core game. That's like cheating on the rest yes. of it. So oh my god, you're in my um, mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I get it. It's hard, it's, but it's also really hard to just buy a bit and then think, now oh, no, I'm going to want the rest of the oh, future. Man. I'm never going to be able I've to got find that, it. Um, so. There's that. Um, uh, Song of Ice and Fire tac- uh, tac- tactics um, that's being released at the minute, and I'm so close. To, I, I've, I've not backed it yet because I'm, I'm, I really love uh, the Song of Ice and Fire tabletop game. I think it's a really good rank and flank game. Yeah, it's, um, it's, game. A, it's a really good game. I've got like you can see, there's a shitload of it over there, um, but. I'm trying not to buy the awesome dragon <laughs> on the thing. I'm like, the awesome dragon, which will sit there and probably not get painted for ages, and then I'll feel guilty because it sat there and not got painted and stuff. It's like the um, the Joan of Arc. Um... Is it a uh, yeah, so the Joan of Arc one that came out um, yeah. uh, ages ago, and I did the all-in pledge, like 500 quids worth of miniatures and a massive dragon and all this yeah. other crazy I rem- stuff. I remember the dragon mini for that, and I, I almost did the same thing as you. Right? I managed to uh, persuade myself oh, not God. to at the last minute. <laughs> it's a, I actually paint... I've, paint it's not finished but it's actually painted it was the one thing it's like i'm going to paint this fucking dragon but i have literally boxes and boxes of i think they're like they're not six mil but eight mil sort of miniatures sort of like in boxes and i was like and the, the concept of painting all of those figures is making me feel slightly nauseated and i'm just like i want to i'm feeling guilty because i spent so much money on it but i'm just i don't know if i can and it's like it's getting the point where you said would they come painted like i've got star wars armada and star wars x-wing and things they come made they come painted you can put them on your shelf and feel good about them even if you haven't played them for ages you don't feel guilty because they're there and they're looking pretty and they're nice whereas i've got a big box of plastic crack that the 
pile of shame that makes me feel guilty every day because it's sat there doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, um, I hear you. You know, like I used to work for Games Workshop. You don't have to talk to me about piles of plastic crap. You know, I, <laughs> I could have filled this cabinet with sprues. And I, work, I worked at uh, Games Workshop in the glory days of staff when you could just go down to the picking floor and pick the components that you wanted out of the bins i just want the metal arms from the cadian shock troopers like and then go and just weigh it and they'd be like yeah that's five pounds please you just buy on weight and it would have been worth like you know 300 quid it was it was ludicrous plastic sprues were like 50p each so that's like a pound of rhino you know it was it was bonkers back then and uh, you would just be like, well, I'm going to build a tower on me. I'll have six hammerheads and 12 <laughs> fish. And, and then you'd be like, when am I going to build this stuff? Yeah. Like it was, it was obscene. Like it, I had a lifetime supply of Warhammer. And I, I've got to the point where, you know, just, just off camera here, there's a display cabinet. If it's painted, it goes in the cabinet. If it's not, it goes in a box in the attic until I feel obliged to paint it and, and use yeah. it and play it. And, and um, eventually... I've been able to slim down the amount of miniatures games I'm prepared to buy stuff for, you know, like I, we mentioned some of nice. I have a free folk army and it's now painted yeah. and I'm too afraid to add to it, even though I want to buy the giant mammoths, oh, too yeah. afraid to buy them yeah, because yeah. I have to paint them yeah. and make them match the rest of the army. I'm like, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do that. I'll just stick with what I've got. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, I feel you. It's I like, I had like, I was really bad. It's more cause I'm like, I've got zero, I'm ADHD. So I've got massive impulse issues and stuff. So, I'm. I've just sort of kind of not got a rain. Well, I've got a rain on it because I'm. I've been diagnosed. I feel like I know how to control myself a bit more. But I had so many. I had every imperial army for forty k. I had knights. I had custodies. I had multiple marine armies. I had um ad mech, and and then I had some xenos armies and stuff. I was like, I I am never ever in my entire life even if i retired now going to be able to get all these painted and play with them and all this other stuff so i just i've now just got my my space wolves army which i've had you know i've been building space wolves since rogue trader days and stuff so it's like space wolves is my thing so i've got them i've even slimmed that down and more of it sort of earmarked the the song of ice and fire stuff i had every army i had stuff from every single army and i went again why have i done this i don't need all these armies i'm never going to play these things so i've got starks again because i'm a sort of fan, and i got lannisters because my brother likes lannisters and a few sort of neutrals because it's good to sort of mix your army up a bit and stuff like that but i'm you're like you just need to pick your battles effectively and yeah and and go with that and stuff because you it does feel you make you feel slightly sick and depressed because you've got all the stuff that you've spent money on and it's just not getting used and it's not getting you're not doing you're not giving it any, doing it any justice yeah no but you know like it's uh gaming is an, is an escape from reality right you know it's uh, exciting and it, it's cool and when something somebody sells you an idea then you're like oh, i want that idea too you know like oh this army is cool but I mean, look how cool the salamanders look on the tabletop, you know? Like, I want to have all that green and flames. And then the reality dawns on you that you only get green and flames after you've spent, like, 450,000 hours painting green and flames. And, um, you know, if you you don't have a family or a full-time job or your only hobby is painting miniatures, maybe you can do that. You know, I know, I know, I've got friends who come home from work and they paint. That's what they do. They paint and they've got some incredible looking armies and I'm very jealous. But, you know, like that doesn't work with my 
lifestyle and <laughs> job and family and you know like if i get a bit of time to paint now it's like this is a treat you know and it gets clocked the family like you've had your treat you've got some painting time <laughs> i get in the garden you uh, know so it's um trained well yeah, and trained well <laughs> yeah it's like um I, when it comes to painting armies, I just have the spray can approach of just put them in a box, spray can the lot of them, and go, yeah, they've all been sprayed black, they've been stealth armor, job done. The real that annoys me about the painting is my, uh, is my sort of painting is I've got friends and I've been to tournaments and stuff, and I've seen armies and I went, and they look like from a distance, you went, those are really well painted, and you have a look at them, and they've literally just sprayed them, added a few highlights, and then sort of maybe put a wash in and stuff. And they look really good. I don't even I do that, Matt. can't do that. I have this sort of, like, perfectionist thing where each each miniature has to be three-layered, three or four-layered colours, there has to be washes, there has to be stuff, and I, I, I get to the point where I can't finish anything because I'm so burned out by the whole thing, and I'm like, I have to do this 50 million times over and over again again to get the entire thing so i do about one model a a, a year uh it gets finished and i'm like <laughs> yeah i'm not, <laughs> not gonna do that and then i feel guilty because i have if you go to tournaments you have to have three colors minimum and then you're like mm-hmm. sitting there and you yeah three colors minimum to play and then you're like i hate this army because i've been forced to paint three colors on it and i didn't really want to do it that way and yeah it's yeah <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I I, I I can paint to what I think to be a pretty high standard. You know, I'm never gonna win any awards, but it's way above tabletop. Yeah. It's way above gaming standard, but I'm slow. Yeah. You yeah. know, like I can get great results, but every piece is like you know, a pro- a professional painter, a really good painter, like the amount of time that they would spend on their golden demon entries is what I would spend on your typical space marine. And that's a real problem when you've got to paint 50, yeah, 60, agreed. 70, 80 models, right? Like, so I'm kind of the same now. I'm more of a like paint feature pieces, big monsters for the enjoyment of it and don't really force myself not to buy rank and file stuff anyway. Yeah. Like, I have a couple of playable 40k armies that are done. And then we've got loads of X-Wing stuff. It's pre-painted. I've got an Infinity Army done. I've got Song of Fire and Ice Army done. Now I'm like, now when I paint, I paint for the joy of painting a beautiful dragon or a beautiful model. I I just can't bring myself to start a new army for something. Yeah. Um, Definitely get more yeah. enjoyment out of the, like I've got all of the stuff that I've got painted and I'm kind of happy enough to be painted is bigger models because you feel like you can focus a lot more time on that you're not having that dread of like i have to do 10 of these and like it's just that one centerpiece model and you feel a bit more comfortable doing it so all the things that i've got and i would say are finished are either a diorama um or uh, a bust or like a big monster and stuff like that and i'm like yeah okay happy with that yeah. One thing I wanted to ask as well is you mentioned obviously um hands up publishing is your thing. Where did that name come from? Why wasn't it just Games by Shep? Uh, originally it was Games by Shep. Oh. Um that is exactly how it started. Um and then I I adopted the name um Halfwing Games at one point in time. I don't know where that name came from. When I did my first Kickstarter, which was for a little abstract game called Package, which was just me proving that I could publish a game and checking out how Kickstarter worked and, you know, those kind of things. Um, and I actually sold the license, the package 
and the name of the company to a, to another publisher, and they just took all the stock and took the name, and I I moved on and went back to games by Shep. But um, when I, I interestingly, so the the name Hunter Publishing is a is a meta plot in joke from the Gaia Complex. So the name for the publishing company came after I wrote the Gaia Complex core book. So in the Gaia Complex, in the setting that we were talking about earlier, this you know dystopian Europe. Their one corporation is effectively acts a bit like the government on a on an agreed treaty with all the other big corporations, and they are called Hamster Innovations, and they are the company who maintain the AI Gaia, which is the overseer of the metropolis. Um, so, like, I want I won't give too many spoilers for people that decide to buy into the game, but the game has an underpinning meta plot, which is not hidden it's all explained in the core book the fiction at the end of the core book but there is a a, a meta plot that involves time travel uh, that explains a number of the strange paradoxical occurrences in the world like vampires mm-hmm. okay so um and in this story a guy frederick hanser who is the the son of the guy that founded hanser innovations travels back through time to give himself the plans to the AI that will eventually be the founding of the company. Worried that his business partner is going to cut him out, he travels back in time and kills young Frederick Hanser. In order to not die, he travels even further back in time to when he was still alive and disappears. So there was a small in-joke that what he did was he travelled back in time to 2020 and started a small role-playing games publishing company called <laughs> Publishing. And when when uh, when we when I first did this, when we first did the first campaign, anybody that emailed us, the reply would come from Frederick Hanser. Not I would sign it as Frederick Hanser. Wow, now, obviously, I did this for like eighteen months, and not one person ever noticed because not enough people a had the game or b emailed me, and I eventually kind of dropped the whole charade because Hans Publishing just became a thing. It was on a couple of books, and I worked as a uh, like as a studio, if you like, for a couple of other publishers, and eventually it was like it was just a non-point. It was the coincidence that my logo is very similar to the logo in the Gaia complex for another company that's called Hamster Innovations. But that was how it all began, like the whole time travel meta plot. You never find out what you do in this book, but you never found out where Frederick Hamster disappeared to. And the idea was that he'd come back and started a company that made a game about what was going to happen to him. I love it. I love so it. it was like, it was supposed to be an intricate joke that probably fell on deaf ears to most people. But... That sounds similar to some of the meta plot that was initially developed and never released for Slay Industries. Um, not really. It was, it, okay. Um, the truth would be what you're referring to. What was yeah. The truth. That was, um, I mean, I don't really want to rehash the truth because... It was a painful process for a lot of people. Uh, there was a there was a meta plot to Slay Industries that uh, the designers never intended to state explicitly. Yeah. So there was a there was an internal document, so they all understood the twists and turns of that process, and um, uh, basically that got leaked online and. Uh, lots of people were really up in arms because they felt that the game didn't need a meta plot and that it ruined their perception 
of the world, you know, with all these big aliens and this sinister dark future. And um, that just kind of proved the point that you don't need to know what a metaplot is to enjoy the game. And that's kind of why I separate in the guy complex. I'm like, look, yeah, I want to play the game, play the game. The metaplot never touches the players. The GM wants to know it. That's cool, but the players will never get involved in time travel. They'll never get blah, 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 blah. But if the GM wants to know how vampires can exist in what looks like our future, this is how. Like, this is this is how things go. The justification. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and it's a story. It's a piece of fiction, you know. Like, I wrote the story for the guy Complex a bit like a Netflix series. Episodic character pieces that all intertwine, and they are scattered throughout the books, and then they get tied together at the end of the of the core book and um so yeah the slay industries one was way more out there um it was you know to summarize there every universe has a few people select people that are known as builders and whether they know it or not they have the capacity to create new universes in their mind and when they create those universes in their mind those universes come to a reality and um uh, a gentleman in earth it, it sort of Thatcher era Scotland learns of builders and manages to snare a few of them into his uh, mental hospital and experiments on them in an attempt to create multiple universes. And one of those universes succeeds, but through, but under duress. And as a result, it's not an earth like universe. It is a strange world and the various key players within that world are people from the hospital in scotland in thatcheresque britain and so mr slayer and uh, you know all the key key members of the of that corporation are all related to that so that that was the overview of of the um it was a world within a world within a world being manipulated by somebody who had, had forced that upon them and the meta plot for Slayer industry still exists, you know, Dave and, and Jared still took that forward, but it is for second edition, it has been modified. You know, originally the thing that was leaked and that everybody came to accept was, was a part baked idea that touched on how that world could be, it was never intended to, to see the light of day and it hadn't been fully developed. It wasn't something that was written, you know, as the story progressed, it was an initial offering and so for second edition, they have been, it, it's still got a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors, but they're much more upfront about it. If you have the Slay Industry second edition core book and you open the cover and read the first piece of fiction on the, on the inside cover, like, yeah, like it's set on earth. Like it's not related to you. If you were, didn't understand, you'd be like, what's going off here? <laughs> so it's far more upfront now. And it's a far more, what we have seen of the new truth is far um, more explored. Um, uh, but it's great, you know, they, the way that they handle that and, and, and that they kind of creates that whole meta plot vibe is really exciting. It's very, very out there. Um, but so is Slay Industries, right? Yeah. Like that world is, is, is insane uh, in the best possible way. So, um, uh, yeah, but you know. Characters. Yeah, you know, but, you know, you you made that reference to the guy complex and inevitably, you know, I worked on Slay Industries. Yeah. I was a fan of Slay Industries as a teenager. It's impossible to not say that Slay Industries has had a significant influence on my life in gaming and on me as a person, you know, and inspired me to go and, 
and create and the team there, you know, Mark and Dave and Jared, amazing people, amazingly creative. And it was really inspirational working with them and going off to do my own thing. So, you know, it stands to reason that there is, uh, you know, there's some level of reference there. Yeah. Nice, nice chaps have been on the podcast before. Um, I had a really good conversation with them about just running Kickstarters in general. How did you you find running Kickstarter? What what are the, did you find it? Because there's a lot of people they find you know they find it very stressful. There's a lot of shit that goes wrong. How have you? How's your experience been with them? Um, yeah, not so bad. Like you know, your first couple of Kickstarters are always rocky and ropey. Um, I've got kind of got two sides of the coin. So I've worked on Kickstarters for some pretty big publishers. Mm. Um, you know, like I've been involved in Kickstarters with Modifius and, um, you know, they are extremely busy. Things are changing all the time. You know, hundreds, if not thousands of backers with questions on a daily basis, you know, and they're exhausting, you know, they're great. They're fun, productive, but exhausting. And then um, I've got the flip of that, which are my self-published, tiny, relatively low-marketed Kickstarters for my passion projects, which are, in a in a strange way, quite busy because it's just me managing them, right? But um, they're much more relaxed because, you know, like the games are, right? They're on my terms, you know. I'm I'm not one to to jam them full of bazillions of stretch goals or thousands of add-ons or you know i think the the kickstart i'm running at the moment for the the source book for the guy complex has probably got more add-ons than i've ever considered before and we're still talking like four or five things on top of the books you know and they're all like pretty basic you know dice tray gm screen you know real simple stuff so um i uh, i i enjoy running kickstarters for myself I find it, it's really good way to engage with my little niche audience. Um, you know, people have a lot of fun. It is stressful because, you know, I'm a small publisher working with a small budget to make a small run of books. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, people see a number like, oh, you're a one man banding. You made 10 grand on Kickstarter. You're like, yeah, but by the time you've printed the books and you've shipped the books around the world and you've taken the hit because you're including shipping in that price and you're like you know like i've made 50p out of it but my books are out there and if i'm really lucky you know like asmodee might buy 50 of them and you might see it in traveling man or something and it'll make me smile so it there's a bit less pressure on my own kickstarters because i know that i'm unless something weird happened where i launched it went to bed woke up the next morning and there was 50 grand on there you know like a freak a freak accident uh there's very low pressure to my kickstarters you know i have a few hundred backers to maybe 300 backers it's very easy for me to put some real good focus on customer service and i get a lot of great feedback about you know how well the kickstarters are run and that's because i have the ability to have the time and attention to connect with people answer every query and that's great but for bigger campaigns with bigger publishers it can be really daunting really hard work and you also when you've got that many people you know you've got two three four thousand backers you get a lot of opinion from people there's a lot of things i think you should do this i think you should see this and you know what sometimes some of those ideas are really good and you can act on them as a publisher but when you act on one person's idea everybody else expects that you should also act on their idea and you it's that surprisingly easy to upset people you know like there's a lot of kickstarter backers there's a lot of kickstarter backers who act 
it's hard to tell right behind a keyboard, but you, you know, people can act quite entitled when they're yeah. spending or pledging money to yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and, uh, and can be quite offended when you say, I don't think we're going to do that. Sorry. You know, it's a, it's yeah, a, it's a tough I, one. I've noticed that I, I like, I'm, I, I don't know. I think I've probably backed like over 80. Uh, I, I'm like, there's a lot, I've, I've backed a lot of Kickstarters in my time. And um, there's, I, I'm, I'm not too bothered about time. Like I said, you know, Vanguard turned up four years later and stuff. It, you know, the time limit doesn't bother me. It's when there's no communication that sort of starts to annoy me because it's like it, it when nothing happens and, and there's been a couple of them, we talked about it, the Dave and Jared and stuff. It was the, the air, um, the Airflix one, uh, from Dice Sports. Um, and, um, you know, it's an amazing game um, when it came through. It was, but he obviously had a lot of problems and things like that. But because of those problems, he wasn't communicating. And that communication caused so much shit to go down because there was no communication and stuff. And that, for me, is a big bugbear when it comes to Kickstarters. Is it, I don't care, really. You know, within reason, I'm not too fussed about time. You know, it's a present to my future self, effectively. Um, but if there's no communication, it's like, even if it's just like, there's not a lot of changed going on but we've done this or we're having a few problems with this but just to keep you in loop this is what's happening and stuff so one of the every couple of weeks or a month even every month is fine by me but when you suddenly don't hear anything for ages and i've been scammed three times on kickstarter where i've lost money where they just disappeared um that sort of makes me my 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 little butt pucker slightly whenever people don't say things because i'm like i've lost money before i don't want this to happen again so yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real danger. I am, um, you know, I have a really strong feeling about Kickstarters and the, you know, uh, like I said, my Kickstarters are pretty small, you know, we're not talking about big profit things but for my, for myself, I don't take something to Kickstarter unless it's print ready. Like it needs to be good to go with the exception of any content that might be unlocked through stretch goals. I tend to do stretch goals for RPGs as in extra pages in the book, you know, like this book is uh, the current one, we went to kickstart with a 112 page book mm-hmm. and the stretch goals can push that up as high as 128. That's my absolute cap. Another 16 pages. Um, and during the course of the last week, you know, four of those unlocked pages have already been completed. So by the time the campaign ends within a week or two weeks, you will expect those to be done. Editing, proofing, layout, we're print ready. But minor stretch goals, I'm ready before before Kickstarter starts. All the layout, all the writing, all the editing, all the artwork, print files are ready. I'm good to go. And that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, and a lot of publishers are slowly moving to that model. Like they're ready to print or they're very close. You know, we're looking at a 90% ready product as opposed to here's an idea give us money and then we'll use that money to start the process of creating it. You know, that used to be how a lot of games publishers worked and they have slowly migrated away. Um, You know, I I mentioned earlier, I'm working with monolith now on a couple of projects and they're very much in that boat now, you know, and they weren't once upon a time back when they worked with mythic games and mythic battles, Pantheon and things took quite a while to fulfill. Now they're like, you know, we aren't going to Kickstarter with the next game until it's ready to print. You know, they've just finished their Kickstarter for the Conan Red Nails expansion and it, and it's print ready, you know, like bar a few stretch goal tweaks that need to be done. So, and that's a great way for publishers yeah. to work. Yeah. It's a bit more work up front, but 
being able to have that level. You know, we don't need to keep giving you a monthly update for a year because two months after the Kickstarter ends, we're going to print. We'll let you know when it arrives in the warehouse. We'll let you know when it's shipping. Everybody's happy. Yeah. It's a much better way to work. Yeah. It's basically an advanced ordering system for publishers, isn't it? Well, that's it. But I think people it, take advantage of that. Like you said, they're sort of yeah. like, they, they use it as this is an idea. And then you've got years. And I've had some Kickstarters that have lasted a very long time. And it's it can be slightly frustrating, but... It's like, like you said, there's that, there's that entitlement. I think some of them, some people have that I've spent money, therefore I should have this at this time. And they don't sort of have that sort of feeling of, you know, what's going on in the background and all the other stuff that's happening and stuff. But I guess like what you said, because they're not, they haven't had a ready product to go. Um, that's sort of bringing in these sort of insecurities for people. People, it's the, it, partially their own fault, I guess, because they should be prepared to do these things beforehand and then sort of move with it instead of doing it all sort of last minute and then obviously the shitstorm happens. Yeah, it's a, it's a real double-edged sword and, and it's one of those kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because it on one side, you're like, okay, we're going to produce this game, we're going to get this game, all fixed costs paid, we're paid for the writing and the editing and the layout and the artwork, and it's going to look beautiful. And therefore, on the Kickstarter, we can show off loads of the product and get people excited. They aren't just looking at a page with one piece of art and an idea on it, right? We're going to show loads of product. But then you have a big pool of people who are like, well, if you can afford to make that, why are you using Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've, you've got the money to make the game. The only thing you're missing is the manufacturing. Now, at the same time, a lot of people don't understand how much it costs to manufacture and ship games around the world these days. And even if you were only going to Kickstarter for that part of the money, in my opinion, that's completely valid because it's significant. But the other side of that is people don't want to back stuff that looks half-baked, right? Like, I haven't, we haven't done enough artwork. There's not enough there. I think it's going to take you ages to fulfill because you haven't done enough. I'm not going to back you. So you can't really satisfy everybody right there's no fine point You're like what's the right percentage of book you would like to like for us to have completed before we go to kickstarter there is no right answer and for me the answer is to invest in your product invest in the creative fixed costs of that product then go to kickstarter to attempt to recoup those costs and cover your fulfillment manufacturing and fulfillment costs like that seems to be the most accepted formula and it's the best way to work. And if it doesn't work out, then the company, it's a risk for a company still running a campaign on that level because they might have spent 25, 30,000 pounds creating the product, like the writing and the editing and the proofing and the layout and the artwork. I mean, artwork alone on an RPG core book is astronomical if you're using, you know, high caliber of artist. Um, but if it does work out, get all that money back. And, uh, you know, you pay for printing and off you go. And then you get the people going, oh, well, you know, if it, if it costs you £30,000 to make the thing, why is your funding goal only fifteen grand? You know, like that's a falsity. So this is another, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You get to that point, you've sunk those costs. Um, it would be better to get the money to manufacture and cover the manufacturing and accept that as a loss unless the game sells well in the future than it would to just axe it and not get 
anything back, right? So the general consensus now is you invest to create your product, you go to Kickstarter, the Kickstarter is the minimum requirement, is the manufacturing and fulfillment requirement for that product. And then if you overfund, you fortunately are fortunate enough to get your original fixed costs back. And then when it goes to retail, the sale of the excess stock is what actually makes you some money. So, but, you know, for a lot of people, they they either refuse to acknowledge that concept or they are unhappy that you either, if you can, you don't need Kickstarter because you're a big publisher and you've already got a product. You know, it's a bit of a... Yeah, hashtag. It's a, it's a tricky situation. Yeah, yeah. like it's, I, it's a tricky situation to be. I check the, the the comments on the the Kickstarters all the time, and you see some of the ones that have been on for a while, and it just people going absolutely ape shit in the comments about it being a scam and how they they want their money back and stuff. And I can understand. There's been a couple which I've been scammed on. I've lost like there was one where I lost like three hundred and fifty quid for like a like a Boston thing. Uh, I wanted, but um. You know, that was one where they literally just disappeared and nothing happened. But there's been ones which were, you could see there's active updates and stuff, and people are still, this is a scam. I want my money back, and how dare you? And then they start posting things like the rights of consumer rights on the on their Facebook, on the, on their, the Kickstarter page and stuff. It's like, give them time, man. They're still going. It takes, yeah. it takes ages to do these things, you know? It's just... But you are right, you know, communication is the biggest downfall of a lot of publishers, you know, especially on Kickstarter. It isn't hard to update people once a month, you know, and that's, you know, another thing I do, I I make updates regularly during a campaign. Once a campaign ends, I post a very detailed timeline overview, um, you know, and I show people exactly what content is done, what stage it's at, and then I... I, pl- I commit to an update a month to tell people where they are or if something significant happens like you know printing has started or the books have arrived you know that could be an extra update and you are right there are people who are like well we're working on it and we've been working on it for three months so we but we so because we're still working on it, we won't say anything it's the disappearing act that scares people it's not that there's not anything else to update you on it's that you aren't telling us there's nothing else to update us on exactly and it, uh, I get it if you've got, you know, 10,000 backers and you have just got an inundated flow of crap to respond to. But for an average size campaign, there's no excuse. You know, you mentioned uh, Airflix. I've got a copy on the table just here. Like Rob's actually, I consider to Rob at Dice Sports a good friend. Yeah, he's a good lad. Um, really nice guy. And uh, he's a great guy and he's shit with communication. Yeah. You know, that was and I've told like, him that to his face and he knows. And that's, that is his downfall. He's yeah. crap. Yeah. And he needs to get better. I like, yeah. I had a, like, I felt really bad. So we had Jared and we had Dave on and uh, we sort of, um, I had mentioned it, and then they'd said, well, we know him, we know from Dice Sports, because he was obviously beside you guys at UK Games Expo and stuff. Cause obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I was like, I said, look, man, I've got this, you know, this game, Airflix, that I've backed, and, you know, it looked awesome when we played it, and it was really good, and, um, you know, I backed it, but he just, the guy just doesn't communicate, and it's like being, I, I can't remember how long it took, four years, it, it, a long time, it took a long time to come through. And um, there was very little communication and me being, I'm a very patient person. Like I got like really patient, but it was getting to me to the point where I was like, look, man, when's this coming out? And I was getting really wound up about it. And then they told me the whole story about all the shit was going down, everything that you sort of, everything that happened and you know, how, you know, 
it made me feel bad so i had a we had a, an interview with him at uk games expo and stuff and he told us everything that went on and stuff and I, I felt really bad but that being said i know even with all that shit happening i think to to mitigate some of that sort of like oh my god panic that this is going to be another scam that i've been done all it would take is there's no update this month i'm still working honestly i'm still where i'm i'm still here yeah and you don't, i'm not running away with your money i'm still here this is your thing yeah and that's yeah it. absolutely you're lying you yeah, you're absolutely right. You should get you should get Rob on the show at some point because he'll he's hilarious and um, and you'll after you've spent an hour and a half chatting to the guy, you'll completely forgive him for all his uh, oh no, I did. We had an interview with him. He's a lovely guy, like a really good, great yeah. game, lovely guy. It was um, it was just yeah. If you don't know what's behind the curtain, as your Joe average Joe consumer, if suddenly suddenly goes dark and you're not hearing anything from them, um then you're you're kind of going oh my god that's one more of my money that's gone down the drain and i'm not going to see anything and that's your first go-to thought isn't it yeah absolutely and i i'm I've, I've lost i've backed one kickstarter that never i've backed a few kickstarters that were crap when they were delivered but i've only backed one kickstarter that never delivered and um uh, uh ironically and frustratingly i i written part of that that RPG. Oh, no. And the, the, the publisher went bust. Oh, no. So oh, that word never one? saw the light of day. Uh, that was the Kings of War RPG. Oh, that was right. made okay, well. for, for Mantic Games by a partner studio, uh, Red Scar Games. And um, I'd worked with them previously on uh, other project. And I wrote uh, a good chunk of it, mass battle rules for the game, kingdom building rules. Um, I wrote some fiction, um, quite a lot of content. I, after a long battle, I got paid for that work because it was clear that they were struggling and I figured it was good to get in there early and get that sorted. But then the Kickstarter, it funded and they went under and uh, I, I never heard from the guy at the, in, at the helm ever again. So that was a real shame. But, uh, you know, I, I was I was involved in the creation of that game and I, I backed it. And as far as I was concerned, you know, it was a book that was close to being done because you know i was told i was like do you need any more bits doing no it's all in hand now we're into editing so um it's a real shame obviously one reason or another it it didn't come to light so it's always a risk yeah it it always happens i mean um i backed um one game called um oh this this is egyptian themed uh cryptex yes that which you heard about which basically just uh if it the company went under and another company came in, bought the assets up and actually just said, they just did a complete inventory, right, and worked out this is what we need to kind of basically get the games to, the games have been um, built, made, they were just stuck in storage in China, or wherever, and the basically this company came in, bought up the assets and said, right, we will honour the original Kickstarters, but it will mean paying an extra um, delivery charge uh, to basically send them to you at cost. Mm-hmm. I, I I backed yeah. um, a uh, Hero Quest the twenty fifth anniversary. This is before the new version that that Hasbro um, 
brought out recently or more recently this was before that um it, it came on the kickstarter and it's like we're bringing out hero quest 25th anniversary uh and i was like oh my god i'm all over this and i backed that and i got taken down from kickstarter because of uh licensing issues so it got brought up on uh is Le- lorenzo or so. it's a spanish it's like a spanish kickstarter type thing yeah and um, I was like, okay, I'm still in, you know, if they can get it in Spain. Uh, it's it's 10 years. It's been 10 years. It's going to be the 35th anniversary of it soon. And apparently it's all made. And they're still saying, like, there's no, you don't hear very much from them, but they're still saying it's still going to be made. They're going through. They apparently made an agreement with Hasbro over it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's still going. Um, and I've, there's wow. a Facebook group about it. And like, it's literally just them ripping shreds out of this game they're called game the company's called game zone um and i there's pictures of all the miniatures and stuff being made and they 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 they, every now and again you get the odd sort of tippet of something from the new hero quest so what they've done they get around the whole it's not called hero quest anymore so they eventually after some court cases and stuff they came back and they went right if you want the new hero quest you can have the hasbro version of you of it if you want to wait we'll give you what is it's it's spelled quest backwards and then quest forward so it's to quest like this and they, they've renamed it basically so it's not it's not hero quest 25th anniversary which would be hero quest 35th anniversary next year i think um it's to quest or to quest to or whatever it is and they it, it's still a thing that apparently it's going to get delivered and i'm just like you know what man i i i had the hero quit the new hero quest already i said i'm just going to see how far this goes uh, i'll just wait and maybe i'll get to quest at some point in time and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, actually, it just dawned on me there was another. I was in for Alba, the game book from Inside the Box. Oh, yeah, that and, we did, Cryptex. Yeah, so uh, you said Cryptex, and it dawned on me they had like three, four outstanding Kickstarter yeah. campaigns at the same time, and they went pop. Now, obviously, that, that has been um, purchased by another publisher now, and they are doing their best to bring a couple of those games out but alba appears to be dead in the water like it wasn't it wasn't finished like they said it was it's not print ready um so basically every time there's a campaign update it's like a copy and paste from all of them and it says you know we will get to inform you this is only worth reading if you bought one of the other games as an add-on there is actually no progress on alba we're really sorry you know like that game's never gonna happen so um yeah, I mean, it was a game, but it was a kind of like future version of Choose Your Own Adventure, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And But it was like, if you read through the spec of what they were suggesting, it was, you know, it was going to be like a, a Royale-sized book, you know, like a bit bigger than a novel, smaller than an yeah. A5. It was going to be something like five or 600 pages. And I'm like, you can't bind that. Like, from a manufacturing perspective, that's going to be barely impossible on... On, on printable color paper like that book's going to be like an encyclopedia but like the spine won't work it doesn't make any sense like i think the reality of what they had the monster that they had created just kind of crushed them under the weight and um but yeah I'm, i don't think i'm ever going to see a copy of that um which is a shame yeah it sounded like a good idea yeah it's the one the one that i lost the most money on i'm sure i can find the name um but it had sorry karen Pete, i was gonna say like uh, i mean obviously you own your own company you um do like uh design for game or companies 
you're also married with family, children. What do you do to relax when you can relax? What What does that mean? <laughs> like, I am um, relaxed. <laughs> I am. Um, I. I mean, I would say I play games, right? Like yeah. games that I'm not working on. You know, like I'm a gamer. We're a family of gamers. I've got. Uh, I'm married. I've got two now teenage boys. The younger of the two was was 13 last week. Uh, and we, but we also have a one year old who is not quite at the gaming level yet. But <laughs> give me a couple of months. And um, like we're a gaming family. We play games a lot. Um, like most days, a game of something happens, even if that's just like a quick blast of Seven Wonders Duel or a huge game of Star Wars Rebellion. Some something happens in the house that's gaming. And my my boys are now, you know, we started board gaming with them when they were sort of like six and seven years old. And, you know, now they're 13 and four. I mean, by the time they were, I don't know, like nine eight nine they were playing things like Star Wars rebellion on their own you yeah. know like we created little monsters you know now you know by the time they were i think 10 and 11 the youngest one um won a he placed a, a net runner um event you know like you know they're, they're pretty competitive gamers yeah so i'd like to say gaming is a way to relax but I, if i'm being completely honest i'm always analyzing gameplay i'm always thinking about work when i'm around games now i love what i do right so there's that whole expression you know if you if you, if you do what you love then you'll never work a day in your life I, I do work days in my life when i am knackered at the end of them but um you know i do have i have other hobbies beside i guess music is a reasonably big one um that said it, it's slacked a lot now but i'm you know i'm a i'm a bass player and I produce music electronically. Officially speaking, I have a record deal. Oh, nice. I'm signed to Atypique Records in France, uh, a project, two-piece project called Wrists. Uh, I work with an MC who lives in New York, nice. and we've got a couple of albums out. That said, we've been promising another album for about three years now, and I think we've written one song. So we're kind of on hiatus because life got in the way since COVID pretty much. Um, but I, you know, I still, when I'm not writing for that, I still play bass. Um, you know, I'm a huge, um, effects pedal fanatic and I like twiddling knobs and making weird noises and ambient soundscapes and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I used to play bass in a metal band and then I would play bass in a live drum and bass outfit. And then I kind of migrated into making electronic music that's kind of like death grips meets, you know, industrial, nice. heavy, nasty, aggressive stuff. Sounds like, um, a, sounds like a band. I went to see a band uh, that supported Pig Destroyer in Sheffield um, many, many moons ago. And uh, they were a two-piece of a bassist and a drummer. And the bassist had a million sort of effects pedals, and it was, <laughs> I like it was literally this guy would just hit his bass, and there would just be like pure, and then he would just scream down the microphone, and it was like one hit on all these effects pedals going off, and he would scream, and then the drummer would just hit this dirty sort of like boom, 
and that was it. And then the guy would scream, and I was like, "What the fuck is going on, man?" It's just man. yeah. That sounds like my jam. Yeah, yeah. That sounds, <laughs> proper that, grind yeah. stuff, man. I was just like, I, I, I have not. There, I, I don't do drugs, so I'm not. I'm, I'm not enjoying this. <laughs> it's just weird. Yeah, I, I like you know. I, I like pretty experimental stuff. I just like making noise soundscapes. I, I guess, uh, you know, I like one end of the scale I like really industrial kind of uh, experimental stuff and at the other end I like really kind of ambient electronica um you know and I kind of like I like making stuff a bit of bit of both yeah yeah, yeah. um I kind of approach bass playing like a bit more like playing a synth I think if the string like if you're a musician and you have any idea what I'm talking about uh, my approach to music is that the strings on my bass are like setting off an oscillator in a synth but the thing that actually makes the sound are the pedals, you know, like it's the it's the it's the knob tweaking, and um, oh, yeah. that is the instrument. So that that's kind of my approach, and it works for me as a bedroom twiddler. Um, I don't do really do live music anymore, and when and, and wrists does tour, but given that I'm here and he's in the US, um, when we tour, I am represented generally by a laptop, and he presses play and he does the shows. I produ- I'm a more of a producer in that project and he is the face of the band so it works yeah. and it's fun when we get around to making some music yeah i miss i miss doing live stuff we like my band's called skin to pig and we're not as as he- we're heavy we're a sort of melodic melodic metal band and stuff uh find us on spotify ladies and gentlemen article article 19 <laughs> is our album um but uh yeah so it's and we haven't played in last album was 2011 i think we've got we've got three eps and an album but we we've We've got loads of songs, but we just got to a point where everybody was getting married, having kids. Um, life just suddenly got in the war, war, in the way, and the whole rock and roll dream, which sort of was petering out anyway, because you know, you know, there's not a lot of money in in rock and and well, there's not a lot of money uh, money in melodic metal, um, and um, it just suddenly started to die off. And I think you know, round COVID basically finished it off. Like, and that's not to say we've broken up or anything. It's just we haven't we haven't played and. In, in fucking ages it's, and it's a shame because i miss i miss live gigs and i miss playing and um having to practice and sort of coming up with new stuff and getting that those goosebumps when something new you're like you're like somebody will come mm. up with a riff and you go that's fucking awesome riff and then you just sort of play play into it and you'll just have this sort of like you'll just bounce off each other and something you create something amazing um but yeah you don't you don't have that anymore i don't have that anymore and i'm getting to that point where i'm, I'm uh, too old for this now yeah, I mean, dude, I, dude, look, I look have at the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm yeah. like, they're they're rich, man. <laughs> yeah, not... but if you were if you were the Rolling, if you had to create the Rolling Stones from scratch, now that's a whole different offering, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like, I, that's the. I have lots of times where I'm like, do you know what? I know some great musicians, and I'd really love to play live. Okay, let's just get something together. Let's just do some like ambient stuff. Let's make some stuff like Submotion Orchestra or Lamb, or let's go do some cool I stuff. Love Lamb. Then I'm just like, love Lamb. you know, like I'm I'm like. Like I like you said, like you know, I've got three kids, I've got a full time job, yeah. family. I'm like, I've got hobbies, I do stuff, games night, I play a bit of music, I get odd, odd weekend, I'll go play some airsoft, you know, like I, I do, a, I do some stuff, I do a bit, of, you know, jujitsu, you know. And I'm just like, when, when? No time. The idea yeah. of being in a band and going through the writing and rehearsals again for months on end to go and play a gig seven people and a dog at the old angel and knocking friends like i just can't i can't i don't think i can bring myself to do it i'm at the point where i'm like you know like i don't know like 
when Nine Inch Nails say they need a new bass player and I get that gig, we're in. Yeah. We're in. <laughs> yeah. like, I can't, I, I can't, I can't start over again, you know, yeah. with a band at, what I'm old and I'm I'm 42 this week you know like I just I don't have the time or the effort or the energy or the motivation to start from scratch the idea is brilliant until the first rehearsal right and then you're like it's a stress right what we're doing (laughs) yeah it's just not not gonna happen you know I I maybe like you know another few years I'd do a reunion gig right when I was in a metal band we played we toured a bit we played I played some rock stuff and then about would have been about eight years ago now, seven years ago. We did like a one-off reunion and we played Nottingham Rock City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. I feel like maybe we could do that again in another 10 years. I can just about remember how to play like, you know, those eight songs. Yeah. It'd be fine. Like I, I, know, I, so. I, I've always said, I, I, I feel like, you know, because obviously I'm still very friendly with all the members of the band and stuff, but it's like, uh, it's like, we keep on going, we should really do this. We have all these songs that we never recorded and like, I'm really happy with them. And it's just like, we just never got to do that and even like those small gigs where it's literally the other bands and their girlfriends can be a good laugh like i remember playing traveling to wrexham playing a gig in wrexham to this small thing and it was literally it was literally the other bands and their girlfriends but it was fucking hilarious man it was a great gig because nobody gave a shit it was just like so the other band were coming on stage with you and playing stuff we did like a panterica we did we did walk pantera cover and stuff so they came on and sort of kind of started kind of getting on we did a like a human pyramid midway through the gig and stuff, just having a bit of a laugh. So that's times like that. And then everybody was drunk bar me because I was driving on the way home and it was just a good laugh. So those moments are what it's all about and stuff like that. Uh, you just sort of have to accept that you're never, like we we accepted pretty early on. We were never going to make any major money out of it. It was just going to be a, like a hobby oh, yeah. and a, a bit of a flex when we go, yeah, we've got two music videos and, a, and, and an album on, on Spotify and that's it. That's all it is now. It's just sort of, you know, the memories and those little <laughs> things, you know? Yeah. I played some really memorable gigs and I like, you know, I can relive those and go, oh man, I must do that again. They're brilliant, you know, but inevitably it's just too much hard work. I remember one gig, I used to be in a, in a pretty heavy band called Saltburn. Oh, we were yeah. based out of Nottingham. We were like, we were talking before this call about some great bands back in the day. We were talking about Pit Shifter coming back for oh, a oh, tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to, we used to rehearse with like a load of the, the, the same studio as a lot of the Nottingham bands like that it was Pit Shifter and uh, My War, Sands and Dilo, like a lot of the, like, you know, the, the bands from back in the day. And um, we, we toured and we went, we played a gig um, down south at, uh, in Margate, a venue called the Lido, which is literally on the beach. Like you step out yeah. onto sand and we went down on a Wednesday night expecting it to be like awful you know, as you do when you're touring in a, in a band back then. And it was rammed. I say Wednesday night, we found out when we got there, it was like 14 and ups night. Right. And so it was just rammed full of kids that like metal, right? And we, we were like kind of early machine head sort of yeah, vibe yeah, yeah. of a band. And we played this gig and um, it's probably the most memorable gig I ever played because A, it was like, I don't know, 500 people just going mental for it. And then... During the last track, all the lights came on and they literally turned the sound off and they just cut us dead in the middle of the song because some kid had popped his hip out of its joint in the mosh pit and the paramedics <laughs> had to come in and clear the room. So we were like all on stage like, what? Oh, yeah, no. the paramedics are in like, stop, 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 stop. Oh. You get this kid out. He was like screaming his head off. So that's a really memorable 
you know, we, we toyed with uh, Saltburn, We Kill Kids as an advertising slogan for a while afterwards, <laughs> but we decided against it in the end. So, yeah, you know, good times. Back, yeah. you know, that was, you know, 20, 20 years ago yeah, or thereabouts, yeah. you know. You know, um, you're getting old when you're, you're, you're thinking, oh, fuck, fuck it, Alvin. Yeah, yeah. The shame, but it is mm. what it is. Never get old, ladies and gents. Never get old. <laughs> Never get old. <laughs> I'm older than both of you. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so, uh, what is, you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of board games behind you and stuff. Uh, what mm. is your sort of, so what's your go, obviously with kids, um, what, have you got different go-to games that you would play with your kids, um, and you would play yourself or, or are you pretty sort of like, as like, as your family, are you sort of pretty zoned into a certain type of game? Yeah. I mean, my where gaming is concerned my kids are not really kids you know they play as you know like any adult would do you know they're very competitive and no game is above them now like i think a lot of people don't give kids enough credit in gaming you know they've been playing long enough now that they're finally getting a new game and they ironically the older of the two is definitely generally down for a heavier weight games than any than i am most of the time um I would say uh, on a personal level, like my favorite tabletop game of all time is definitely Android Netrunner. There's something about the design of that game, which just feels right. Um, You know, I I used to play quite competitively, you know, I played in European championships and uh, it wasn't necessarily any good, but I took part. Netrunner's a uh, card-based game, isn't it? Netrunner's card-based? It's card-based game, yeah. Uh, but over the, you know, things change a lot. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big X-Wing fan. You mentioned X-Wing earlier on. And um, I think over the last six months, the game I've probably played the most has actually been um, Journeys in Middle Earth. Oh, okay. So that's something that uh, not only as a family, but also with friends on, on games nights and stuff. It's something that we've played an awful lot of that kind of like simulating an RPG how do you, you find because that's that's the one thing that i had journeys from middle earth and i got rid of it because i'm not a massive fan of games against the game uh where the game sort of does so like uh zombie side does it the new descent which i love descent i've got first edition and second edition the new descent it's yeah. against the game um there's no agency like there's nobody fucking with you if you're like a dungeon master so like in the original sort of descent you had an overlord and obviously in other games like hero quest or like you had you have an opponent who's sort of kind of wit you've got like a, a battle of wits whereas when it's kind yep. of against the game it feels i don't know it feels like well if i did want to, if i wanted to do that i would just play a computer game so i don't i can't get my head i can't get my head around games like that and that's why it it, it kind of turns me off slightly how would you sort of what would you say about that? Uh, I think I felt that way about games in the past. I felt that way about, I loved it when it first came out, Imperial Assault. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like yeah. it wandered off course a little bit. And I got that vibe, especially when they attempted the app, in, um, it, you know, like process for it. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's, I don't know something about Journeys in Middle Earth. It's just, I don't get that at all. Do you not? I don't know if it's because I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah. I don't know if it's because they've just hit a sweet spot with the challenge in the app. I don't know if I, there's something about that game to me is, and this is not something I would say very often is 
as close to perfection for a cooperative game as I can imagine. Like, I think it's phenomenal. That app is very clever. I've never once seen it glitch. I do have a friend that's told me they had a glitch where it, they didn't save, they lost the final battle, and then they had to start the entire campaign over again. Mm. I've not, it's not, nothing like that has happened to me. I, like, I've just had a flawless experience with it. I've never had, I've, I've never had a game I didn't enjoy. I've played at two, three, four, and five player counts, and each time the way that it adjusts the complexity and the difficulty mm. on the fly is brilliant. The fact that when you add a new product, you can go back and play the old campaign that existed before that product existed, and it implements yeah, bits yeah. of the new product. Like I'm just, I just think it's phenomenal. Like I don't think I can say a bad word about it other oh, than okay. it That's takes up too yeah. much takes up too much space on the shelf. Like that's the worst thing I can say about it. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I, I just, it just works for me. Like, I, you know, I, you like yourself, you tried it, it didn't work for you. You sold it on. I'm sure there's loads of people out there like that, but something about it for me has really gripped me. And once I introduced my Thursday night gaming games night group to it, they were just like hooked. And they ended up buying. A, I play with a few guys that, that live and live together in a in a house, so yeah. they play games together more. And I go and play once a week. And they have since picked up a copy, and they've just it's not left the table in a month for them. Wow! wow. So you know, like the, yeah, maybe I, I just love it. Maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance. I just sort of like I love Lord of the like I you know above me I've got Lord of the Rings, sort of like the old sort of toy biz. I've got loads of them. Mary, I love Lord of the Rings. My my mother's um, my mother's uh, old how she's from oxford was across the road from tolkien's grave you know we used to go pilgrimages and go across the field to sort of look at his grave and stuff but like lord of the rings is all my life so any lord of the rings thing that comes out uh i'm on it but i I just don't know me and my friend played it twice and i was just like i just i got nothing from it it did nothing for me and i was just like i want to really really wanted to like it but i just i didn't hate it granted i didn't hate it but i just it wasn't something that made me want to like carry on uh and play it's like with a lot of the other games like um you know there's that sort of i suppose that competitive side it makes you want to carry on playing like i play in a blood bowl league at the minute which is fucking like i you know it's the only i think blood bowl is the longest running game that i've i've played enjoyed and not really had any problems with since like the the old polystyrene board second edition of blood bowl back in the day like i we i've loved that game it's so it's quite well balanced it's not overly complicated complicated or convoluted balanced is a questionable Uh, i I think it's sure i'll go with you on that it's not it's not it's not okay compared to 40k it's it's more balanced. It's not sort of valid. It's not valid. stupid over the top. Like there are things like stupid high elves and and dwarves and things like that. You're just fucking grind fests, and it's 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 hard to sort of kind of deal with them. But you know, it. I've played you know three leagues, and I'm in the water bowl league uh, in Element Games at the minute, and I've just I've enjoyed every every sort of game of it, and it, the whole thing is it's sort of that whole leveling up, and then having a different opponent each time. And I don't feel like the game's sort of completely broken with 40k, and I've done tournaments of 40k. And after ninth edition, after a tournament, I got absolutely obliterated by a toy army, um, and I just went, I don't ever want to play this game ever again because it was just like it was so over the top, unba- imbalanced. 
Whereas I don't feel that with, with Blood Bowl and stuff. It's sort of like, you know, it doesn't have that. I know it's got its its minor imbalances and stuff, but it's something I really enjoy. But it gives me, keeps me wanting to come back. Whereas that Lord of the Rings game, it didn't really have anything when I was playing. Me and my friends were like, yeah, it's it's all right. It was just sort of like, you know, if, if, it was, if there was nothing else there, we would play it. But it, it didn't have that, I need to play this game. It's like, oh my God, I can't wait to play this game. It's like, you know, it didn't have yeah, anything sure. for me. Yeah. Ironically, with our Thursday night gaming for a few years has been a Blood Bowl league, and we've actually left it alone for a while to play more Journeys in Middle Earth. So it's quite <laughs> quite an ironic thing. We 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 left. We I think we Blood Bowl to death. Like you know, yeah, I used yeah. to I play when I worked at Games Workshop in the VPL league at, at the head office, and I you know I played like yourself. It's been a game that I've played for forever. My my, my boys played Blood Bowl. We, we have a little home league, you know. So I completely get you on that on that game. But yeah, Journey to Middle Earth and the other one is a GKR Heavy Hitters is a game that What's we've that? pulled to the table quite a lot. That was a Kickstarter from Weta Workshop some okay. years ago. Giant mechs trashing a city. Oh. Um, it's hit the table again recently. Like phenomenal models, ginormous buildings. and really, like, It's really hard to find now, but it's a real like beauty of a game. Did you ever... Um, we've got all the... Sorry, carry on. No, I was say we got all the content for that, and we've kind of had like a mini league going on it, where everybody picks a faction, and we just kind of we play it like a blood bowl league, but it's big mechs trashing a shit wow. city instead of instead of blood bowl, you know. So did you ever fun. hear of a game called? It was originally Dust Tactics, then it went to Dust Warfare, and then it went to Dust Nineteen Forty Seven. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. love that game. I have so much of it, like like in on the right here underneath. I've got amazing models. You don't have to build them; they were like there. You know, you could paint them if you want them, but they didn't need to be painted um the mechanics especially for the original fantasy flight version of it which was square based and you just put guys in the square and you know yeah. if there was if there was cover in there it was you know you had it was really easy to play i fucking loved that game and i'm just gutted that it sort of it just died it came it had a mini resurgence and then it died off again and uh it's a shame because i think out of all the war game sort of skirmish games i've played well you know war game skirmish games i've played that one for me had the most simple but in you know rules wise it was something i could play over and over again and but because it died there wasn't a lot there's not a lot of play and because me it was only really me and my brother who played it you know and he's in northern ireland there wasn't we don't play it very often and stuff and it's a shame because it was a really good game really good game yeah i saw i I remember the minis being fantastic for it i never played it but i there's some incredible minis oh yeah man like i've got a they had like the more recently like and i've got a i've got a a cthulhu avatar which because they did sort of originally it was ssr allies and axis and you could get like um mutant monk uh gorillas and zombies on the axis side and then you could have like the russians had this guy called uh, winter child who's like this fucking steampunk super soldier type thing which was awesome and like obviously mechs, so you had like mech based um tanks and stuff. So instead of a Sherman tank, yeah. you had a mech and stuff. And it was awesome, really, really good, really nice models, really great rule system. Um uh, towards the end they brought out a um two new factions, brought out mercenaries one, which is sort of like it was kind of like old school's forties um uh, pinup art, but in so- as soldiers, so they all had like quite yeah. big cleavage and stuff, but like with mechs and big guns and things like that. And then you had um, a um, mythos one, which you had all the Cthulhu based stuff. So you had like uh, a Cthulhu avatar, and you had all these sort of kind of monsters, and they were so good. The models were amazing, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then it just died. 
and it was a shame because it was a, such a really good game, really good game. Anyway, so what are you working on now? You mentioned you had a Kickstarter. So what's the Kickstarter and where can, where can people find it? So, the, yeah, the Kickstarter that's out at the moment is for the new source book for the Gaia Complex, Evolution by Design. So um, we you can find our website, hansapublishing.com, and take you there or just type in the Gaia Complex into um, into Kickstarter and find you. You guys can post a link or, you know, it's fairly easy to, to, to get hold of us. Um, so that, that campaign is live for the next couple of weeks. Um, we've, we've funded at the moment and there's a chance to not only get that book, but to pick up our core book and our, you know, other, other products in the range. There's a, a, a starter bundle on there for people that want to get in and get everything with a massive discount. You can pick up all the books and the new GM screen and everything right. as well. Okay, gang, give me a second. <laughs> Perfect, thank you very much. Um, so that's my kind of personal thing. I have, um... Uh, another project planned for later this year, which is um, just about finished the editing stage and we'll be going into layout pretty much as soon as this campaign is completed. And that's called the Encyclopedia of Incredible Artifacts. And it's a two book set for fifth edition, mm -hmm. which is effectively a hardware catalog for D&D, if you like. Mm. It's a, a catalog of ex legendary tier magic items that has the rules and a fiction background story and lore for each of them, where mm. they came from or their origin is. So you want a weapon for your big bad guy, just grab one. You want a magic item that's going to change the course of a campaign, that's something to really to drastically alter the lives of a character, something that might possess them, something like this. This is how you get it. You get a big lore, flavor story, and then rules of something which is incredibly powerful. And the idea behind all of these items, weapons and armor, is that if you're a low-level character and you find it, it will be phenomenally powerful. If you're a high-level character and you find it, it's still incredibly relevant. They are all exceptionally game-altering pieces of, 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 of magical items. So, yeah, there's a book, book one is weapons and armor. Book two is trinkets and curiosities, and they'll be coming as a two-book set in later this year. Basically, oh, that's good because I run a uh, I've been running a three-year campaign, and uh, that will be quite good. Um, that'll be quite useful, I think. the The issue I have currently is um, my players are level uh, thirteen, moving on to fourteen, and we're getting to that stage where they're becoming superhuman, and throwing things at them is becoming somewhat problematic because. They just one shot everything, and then you find you have something, and they're just doing all these stupid things to get around stuff because of, you know because they're fort level fourteen and they can do that. And I'm just I was watching some documentary, not documentary, some things on YouTube about the struggles with playing with high level. Like D and D wasn't really re ever really designed, and not as much as you can get to level yeah. twenty. They, they didn't put a lot of thought into higher level campaigns and stuff like that. And it's like I just need somebody to come up with something. It's a bit more level, you know, towards those higher levels, so I can I have to do less thinking and on my feet when it comes to them. They've done that stupid thing, or they've they've completely destroyed all your preparation because of this spell and this thing, and I need something to. <laughs> make things better so it's not so hard for me <laughs> yeah there's certainly uh, a few items in the book that will knock them down a couple of pegs if you want to throw uh throw those things yeah, at yeah, them. there's um there's an item in the uh in, in volume two which is effectively a a set of dice that is made from the knuckles of a an ancient being 
and um, you it gives you the rules to play a mini game with it. So whoever's attuned leads the game, and then you play a mini game, and basically you you bid with years of your life, and um, <laughs> you, you you bid by trade, but you bet your own levels of your character, or you bet your life points, or you bet levels of exhaustion, and you you know basically you. You, you bet away your existence. It will permanently reduce your stats, permanently reduce your levels back. Ooh. They won't be level 13 for long if they lose oh, the game. Oh, that's you know, awesome. Like, and you get to, you know, it's not just a, you know, a dice roll to see who wins a wisdom roll or something. You actually play the game with the dice, like the rules for the game are in there as well. So like, there's a load of, there's some real altering things. There's, there's an item that will, we will move you out of, this reality into an alternative dimension and you will have to live and survive in a completely different dimension until you find one of these items in that dimension that can bring you back again you know like here's a, here's the next three years of your campaign in a, a world that makes no sense to you where the laws of gravity don't apply where, <laughs> you know so but at the same time you know we've got the classic fiery sword and um, you know like golden golden breastplate you know like that that the are imbued with, with with magic so it's a bit of a, a mixed bag there for for people nice. um yeah, i had some really great writers work on that with me as well you know like it's very much a, a business thing rather than just a personal project um so that's that's quite exciting so that that's my own publishing thing and then my my focus externally at the moment is quite heavily on the conan rpg for for monolith and very soon we'll be talking about something else that will be coming out of that camp as well. So at the moment, let us know yeah. when, it, when it's it slightly comes. push for the time being. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So uh, I carry on talking about board games and things like this pretty much all night. Uh, but we, 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 because you're suitably, you've got suitably nerdy credentials. I think we can end with our, our little, uh, our little 20 questions thing that we do at the end of some of these, depending on, who's online but um so what we have is a um it's like 20 questions but you pick a we each pick a franchise it could be like it could be like lord of the rings or it could be star wars or it could be the expanse or it could be you know a, a comic book or something like that you pick a franchise and you think of a character within that franchise and then we have 60 seconds to ask you questions to guess who that character is and that's okay. that's the name of the game. So we need you to think now. Nothing so obscure. Like Pete's very good, and I say this all the time. Pete has two ways of playing this game: either really stupidly easy, or so obscure that you're never ever going to get it. It just doesn't do in between types of things. So something like you know, you can pick a franchise. Um, you know, I'm quite knowledgeable in Lord of the Rings. If that's where you want to go in Star Wars as well, I'm all right. Um, and maybe Game of Thrones too. Um, other th- it doesn't have to be those things it could be something else but if you let us know what the franchise is think of a character okay. then we have to we have to guess if what we, it is given that you know a bit about it if we go into Star Wars can we move beyond the movies are you alright with a little bit of extended universe Ooh, yep I yes P- TV shows yes yes, yes, yes yeah yeah yeah. Um, okay. yeah 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 all right let's do it let's do Star Wars okay right okay, okay. Uh, have you got one as well, Pete, you can think of? Yep, I'm all set to go. Oh, right, okay. I need to think of one then. Okay, I might do Lord of the Rings since he's a big Lord of the Rings fan, so we'll do it. Right, okay, so, um, right, so we'll start off with yours. As, um, right. When you say yours, which yours do you mean? Oh, sorry, yeah, Shep, we'll do yours. <laughs> yours, Shep, we'll do yours. Um, yeah. So uh, it's going to be uh, Star Wars, 60 Seconds, 
go. Um, okay, so um, not mo- it's not movies. Are they in the movies? No. Uh, are, uh, is it, am I restricted to yes, no's here? No, you, yes. You, yeah. Well, okay. we, yes. Yeah, okay. What have you said yes? What have Wait, you said no? So you can sort of... Oh, we'll, stop, we'll stop the thing. Uh, stop the clock. Sorry, the clock, I've broken the, the whole thing. No, 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 no. So, you, you know, it's not restricted to yes or no's, but it's like, you know, we, they will generally be yes or no questions. You can sort of okay. elaborate slightly if you wish to. It's just sort of like, you know, but we're going to ask you the questions. Don't give us too many clues unless we're really just far off. Then you can maybe right. towards the I'll, end give us give us a clue. You've only got 60 seconds, so I'll, I'll, I'll be kind to you. So let's go back to the, the okay, first so question so is, uh, no, but you hear their voice in the movie. Uh, okay, so if is it in the last? Is it in the Rise of Skywalker? Yes. Uh, so it's at the end when uh, Kane the- and Jarrus. Correct. <laughs> wow, fifteen <laughs> seconds. Wow, that is going to be a record. <laughs> I would have never got that to be fair, but yeah. Engage smug mode. Smug mode. Engage. <laughs> Holy shit, man! Fucking hell, nice. Yeah, well you. done. Yeah, nice stuff. Nice. I, I, I must was. My office is in pieces at the moment due to the renovation we've been doing, but usually on my desk I have a Ken and Jarrus nice. lightsaber that's, you know, like a dueling lightsaber in his, oh, in, in his uh, cool. thingy. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of a big fan of Rebels, great yeah, series, that was phenomenal great. character. So I never yeah, uh, get, like, I started, uh, people kept on banging on about um, yes, should Clone Wars and Rebels. So I started watching Clone Wars. And it was really hard yeah. going. I couldn't sort of like, I was like, I don't work. What, like people said, maybe later on it gets slightly better. But at the start, I was like, I'm Matt, not sure. I told you to watch The Expanse and you liked it. Oh, I love The Expanse. I'm going to tell you to watch Rebels. Okay. You will also like it. Okay. All I'll right. be I'll... a good boy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I will do that. Okay. No problems. Good. I do that. Okay. Right, Pete, what's yours? Okay. MCU. MCU. Okay. MCU. 60 seconds. Uh, have they got a movie about themselves? No. Uh, are they got a TV series about themselves? Um, yes. Are they they the title character within that TV series? Yes. Are they male? No. Are they fee? Okay. Are are they female? Is it Echo? <laughs> yes. Is it Echo? Yes, it is. Ah, all right, okay, there you go. Another quick one, 20 seconds. Wow, we're blasting through these. I'm going to have to make my Lord of the Rings ones slightly harder then, aren't they? Okay. Um, 60 seconds for all three of them. That's the plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Um, right, so I think as I've done fucking loads of Lord of the Rings ones, I might have to re- rehash one. Um, okay, I'll rehash one. Um... All right. Okay. Well, okay. We'll 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 do this one again. All right. So, uh, Lord of the Rings, sixty seconds. Go. Are in the films? Yes. Do they carry a named sword? Um. I am no. I'm going to say no. They're human. They are not human. Are they? Do the work for the forces of Sauron? Yes. Are they in all three films? Um, they are not in all three films. Are they in uh, F- Fellowship of the Ring? Yes. Are they in uh, Two Towers? Um, 
they are yes i think yes yes it's been i'm sitting, trying to look back at the films and trying to think when they merge into each other yes so but they're not in return of the king yeah no okay. they're an elf they are not an elf you've got one your, your minute so your minute is up i'll give you a clue okay. um Oh, that's going to be really because if I give you the clue, I think you're going to super get it. They are a. They're not a main character. And they're a bad guy. They're in the first movie, they're in Fellowship of the Ring. And they're a bad guy. Are they Urukai? They are not an Urukai. Last question. Zap, what are you doing? Is it the is it the Witch King of Angmar? No. Oh well. It's Durin. It is. Uh, it is Durin's being the 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 Balrog in. Uh, ah. Uh, of course, yeah. Balrog. There Fair enough. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. Very good, Matt. And we, I have done it before, Pete. You've been here. You should have. You should have got it right like that. There you go. Yeah, Matt. My, my knowledge, ones, of, my knowledge game of, 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 of maybe Goth, Gothmog, the uh, Gothmog, the, uh, the the Balrog uh, leader from the Silmarillion. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, my could just say something, Pete. I think my audio's died. Oh. Okay. No, we're still going. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Like, really, really super interesting, all your insights. Um, really looking forward uh, to seeing what you've got going forward. And that those those uh, those books, your, your five e-books sound really good. I think I mean, it's definitely something I want to uh, invest in, as well as the Gaia Complex, which is now on Kickstarter um, for people to back. Looks super interesting. Uh, please give it a uh, a like, uh, and obviously, if you want to support uh, Shep, then please do. Um, I will stick a link in the um, I'll stick a link in the, uh, the 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 bio and stuff below when I put this on. Uh, but for tonight, I've been Matt Gary. With me has been Peter Allison. Good night, everyone, and Chris Shep Shepardson. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. It's been a great time. Night. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Night.